Daniel chapter 3, verses 19 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, if you were with us last week when we concluded our study of the first part of chapter 3, in verses 16 through 18, you remember that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have told the king that they're not going to bow down to his idol, even if their God, who's able to save them, doesn't rescue them. Go back and look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 again to kind of catch you up. Because there's something in verses 16 through 18 from last week that we're going to use to help us in our study tonight and the rest of Daniel. In chapter 3, verse 16, it says... Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now jump back to verse 13, though, and look at the setup for it, because there's something in here that I really want you to see. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, verse 13 of chapter 3, furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, to, ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Listen closely. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, when he says, who is the God that will bring you or deliver you out of my hands? He's putting himself on the same level, if not even higher, than all the gods that they worshipped in Babylon. Who's the God? Remember, they believed in many gods. 
Who's the God that's able to save you out of my hand? He's putting himself on that level of the gods or even higher. Now, as you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to be used to reintroduce Nebuchadnezzar again to the only true God. We looked at that last week at how quickly Nebuchadnezzar forgot after meeting who God was with Daniel interpreting the dream. But how are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to introduce him to this God? They're introducing him to Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar to him as the God that they believe in and will worship even if he chooses not to do things the way they want. You have to understand, most of the gods that everyone worships, <laughs> of the different types of gods that are out there, even though there are no gods except the one true God, they've been created by people to become a god that does what they want. That's why a lot of people have a real problem with the one true God. You've heard people say over the years, well, I don't think I could believe in a god that would. Because God, the true God, does things that we don't like. Well, if he does only what we want him to do, who's God? Do you understand what I'm saying? If he only does what we want him to do, he's our puppet, we're really the God. But go back again and look at verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Remember the question, who's the God who will deliver you out of our hands, out of my hand? He, he's able, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, don't miss this. We touched on it at the end of our study last week, but I want to spend a little bit more time into it, and it's going to get us ready for where we're going tonight and the rest of our study. They said, God is able to deliver us out of your hand. But if he chooses not to do it in this life, we're still not going to bow down. Go with me to Daniel chapter 3 real quick and look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and has delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Nebuchadnezzar got it. This god is so real and so true, they were willing to die, if that's what was going to happen, rather than worship anyone else but that one true God. By the way, that's one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his disciples would rather die then say he didn't rise from the dead. When the lie was going around that his disciples had come and stolen his body, and they all, if you know their history, were put to death, and they say, we'd rather die than lie. We're, he is risen. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. Paul's sitting in prison, and he says, For I know that through your prayers, Philippians 1 verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, listen closely, 
whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Now here he's sitting in prison and he says, I know this is going to work out for my deliverance because of you praying for me. Whether it's living or dying, either way is good. Because if I die, I get to go be with Christ, which is far better. If I, if I live, that means I get more reward for when I do actually go to be with the Lord because I'm going to stay in the body and be used by God accruing more reward. But listen to that. He says, this is going to work out for my deliverance, whether by living or dying. And folks, it's time that we in the church really get to that point. Because as things get worse and worse in this world, as the Bible says it's going to, you will be less and less susceptible to the enemy's attacks if you hold on more and more loosely to the things of this world and are living more for what is to come. Because if you let go of what is here and you live for what is to come, what does he have that he can do to you? Where you can honestly say, if I live or I die, it makes no difference because I totally trust that God is the only one true God. He's made me right with him through faith in Jesus Christ, by Jesus' sinless life, by his dying on my behalf, by his rising from the dead. And if you want to do something to me, you're free to. And this is hard for some of us. You want to do something to my family. I still trust him. Boy, that would really help if your family knew the Lord, though, right? Be praying they do. Be praying they do. Go to Revelation chapter 12. During the tribulation period, there are going to be people that come to faith and the Bible says that they're going to have to make an ultimate decision, whether to take the mark of the beast or not. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Do you see it? The tribulation saints are going to have to make a decision even worse than we are right now in this life. They're going to have to decide either to take the mark of the beast or to be killed or not eat or buy or sell. And we're heading in that direction, folks. I'm just going to challenge you. By God's grace, on a daily basis, ask Him to give you the grace to be able to let go of these things of this life more and more and be ready, if need be, to say, I'll be delivered either way. I'm trusting in God. I won't bow down. Go to Psalm 23 and look at verse 4. Psalm 23, verse 4. We're going to come back to this later on tonight in our study. It's a very familiar passage to many of us, the, the Lord is my shepherd psalm. But look at verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We're going to come back to this later on in our study. But I want you to go back to what Nebuchadnezzar says again in chapter 3, verse 15, one more time. Because God showed me something in my preparation for tonight that I had never seen before in this study, 
and it explodes when you take a look at it. Can't wait to show it to you. Look again at what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 15. Who is able, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Keep that in mind and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 8 through 13. Nebuchadnezzar may not have realized it, but in saying he was, these words, he was trying to take the words of God for himself. Words that God spoke through Isaiah many years before. Now, I believe without question, Satan knew these words because they had been written hundreds of years before. Many years before Isaiah wrote this, many years before Nebuchadnezzar says, who's able to deliver you out of my hand? God had said those same words. Listen to Isaiah 43, verses 8 through 13. In verse 8, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Who was the first one to say, who can deliver you out of my hand? God Himself. And here... Nebuchadnezzar is taking the words of God for himself. But here's where it gets really neat. What chapter are we in right now in Isaiah? Look back at verses 1 and 2. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the what? The fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. In this same song, I mean, I'm sorry, chapter in Isaiah, where Satan, I believe, is speaking through Nebuchadnezzar. And Satan is quoting God and taking God's own words where God says, there's no other gods but me. There have been none before me. There'll be none after me. I'm the only one. I'm the only one that can save. Who can deliver out of my hand? I'm the one who's in control. Satan, using God's own words through Nebuchadnezzar, says to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who can deliver you out of my hands? And oh, and ironically, the episode is in a time when they're going to be thrown into the fire. And what had God already promised many years before? Though you go through the fire, I'll be with you. Folks, put in my notes here. This whole thing is being orchestrated. This whole thing is being orchestrated. By the way, these furnaces, we really don't know what they look like. It's obvious that they're thrown into the fire because the Bible says they fall into it. Yet somehow there's a door and they're able to come out. Some... Archaeologists have found some kilns in that area that were shaped like vertical tubes. Some have been found and had, they actually had a dome structure over the top supported by columns. We don't know fully the exact makeup of these furnaces, 
But the fire was heated up so much hotter that the men who threw them in were killed in the process. Now, how many of you have ever been to a bonfire? I mean, not a campfire, I mean a bonfire, where they make a big bonfire. Have you ever tried to roast a marshmallow on a bonfire? You can't roast a marshmallow on a bonfire, can you? You can't get close enough, because if you get anywhere near it, the heat is too much. And you understand fully how hot this fire must have been for the men that were throwing them bound into the fire were killed just in the process of getting close enough to throw them in. These three Hebrew men all fall, verses 21 and 22. Go back to Daniel 3. Look at verses 21 through 23. These three men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the the fiery furnace. Yet when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire, these three men are not bound anymore, and they're walking around in the fire, and they're not alone. It's interesting. We're going to deal with who this fourth person is in just a second. But have you ever thought about the fact that they were thrown into the fire, fully clothed, bound, and they're able to not just walk around in the fire, they're not in a hurry to get out. I mean, just be honest. If you and I had been thrown into a fire... And for some reason, we were able to get out of our, our, our ropes. We'd probably be looking for the escape, climbing out, maybe doing one of these deals. You know, I'll help you pull me up. But at the same time, what's happening inside the fire, stick with me here. What's happening inside the fire is so supernatural and so real that it actually supersedes what's going on around them in the fire. Some of you who have been through some trials in your life know that those were probably some of the deepest and closest walks you ever had with God. And you went through things that you can't even explain, and God did things at a depth and a level you couldn't even describe during those times. We're going to come back to some of that in just a little bit. But who is this fourth person? The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar said he had the appearance of like a son of the gods. Now, it could have been just an angel. But I believe it was Jesus. And I'm going to take some time scripturally to show you why I believe it was Jesus. First off, to say it was just an angel, you have some scriptural evidence for that. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. In Hebrews 1 verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your... Uh, enemies, a footstool for your feet, are they not, meaning angels, all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So we know that angels are used by God to help and to serve humans. Nebuchadnezzar does use the word angel in chapter 3, verse 28. It says, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him. So, Someone could say, I just think it was just an angel. And it possibly could have been. But I believe, and whenever I speculate, I always tell you I'm going to speculate from Scripture. I'll never speculate just to speculate. If I'm going to speculate, I'm going to tell you it's because of Scripture I'm doing so. I believe it is Jesus here making an appearance before he took on flesh. Go to Revelation chapter 1. We, I could show you a couple of places where Jesus is referred to as an angel. And Revelation chapter 1 is one of the ones that's famous. In Revelation 1 verses 1 and 2. 
says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his what? His angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even all that he saw. Who was it that showed up on the Isle of Patmos and visited, visited John? Was it an angel? No, it was Jesus. And, and when John saw him, he felt as though he was dead and he worshipped him and the angel didn't tell him to stop. No, here Jesus is referred to as an angel. Go to uh, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16 and then verses 22 through 24. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now an angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, by the way, do you notice how the angel all of a sudden was just clarified who it was? And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this mighty yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And, it, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be what? With you. That sounds familiar. We're going to see that some more tonight. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midians at Midianites as one man. Jump down to verse 22. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there and the Lord, to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Bezerites. So here Gideon even realizes, I've just seen God. So is it possible that the word angel could refer to Jesus? Definitely. I could take more time to show you how the scripture shows us that Jesus appeared on the earth, on the earth many times before, before he took on flesh. When he was born to Mary, he had always existed. Years ago, when I was a pastor in Chicago, I had a man come to me who had been a member of the church for many, many years, and he was in his 80s, and he goes, I have a problem. And I said, what's that? He goes, you keep talking about Jesus like he's always existed. He didn't even show up until Mary gave birth to him. And I realized that this 80-year-old church member didn't understand that Jesus was God. Took him into my office, sat down with him, and showed him the scriptures. How God has always existed. How Jesus, it says in Colossians chapter 1, and John chapter 1, made everything that has been made. How he's always existed. How the Bible says in the book of Exodus, in chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments, that you're to bow to no other gods but God himself. Yet in Philippians chapter 2, the Bible says every knee is going to bow to Jesus, and every tongue is going to confess that he is God, to the glory of the Father. And... He came to faith. It was such a neat thing that day that he came to realize that Jesus was God and had always been God. He had just been taught that Jesus was just a man, was a mighty man, and God used. And he was going to church for years and even joined the church. But on that day, he gave his, faith, his life and his faith to Jesus Christ. It was such a neat deal. Folks, I hope you understand this as well. Jesus has always existed. And I believe that this was Jesus who showed up. Remember Isaiah 43? Though you pass through the fire, I will be with you. And who is, God, who is able to deliver you out of my hand? 
And then Nebuchadnezzar says those same words in an episode that's tied to them walking through the fire. I believe Jesus is showing up. Bill, I saw you raise your hand. Go ahead. You know, I mean, it's obvious. It says, if it be so, our God, so he's not talking about an angel. Exactly. Whom we serve is able to deliver us. You got it. He will deliver us. Exactly. Again. He's talking about God, not an angel. Right. I, I believe without question, it's, it's not an angel. It's Jesus himself there. Because he's made some promises. I could show you more in the Old Testament, but leave it, we'll leave it at that. By the way, as we've been looking at already tonight, and I want you to see it some more, God himself, Jesus, has promised to be with us when we go through trials and testings. We already saw Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. Go back to Psalm 23. Let's look at the whole psalm real quick. Look at Psalm 23. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hang on for a second. I don't know how many of you caught this in this psalm. Did you notice the pronouns changing? Did you notice how it goes from theology to practice and belief? He goes from saying, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. He guides me. To you are with me. You are going to take care of me. Folks, that's my prayer for us. That if your relationship with Jesus is on a level that it's just these things are true. I would love to see you move them to it is true because I've experienced it. Not he, but you will. Do you see the difference between that? There's lots of people that can give the right answer. If I were to give you Bible questions today and give you a written test, many of you could get the right answer. The question is, can, are you living it? Can you honestly say, he's doing it in my life? He's doing it in my life. Go to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you'll know that I'm in my Father and you're in me and I in you. Jump down to verse, chapter 16, verse 33. Chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, in the world you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have trials, you're going to have tests, you're going to have suffering. But in who? In me. By the way, it's interesting. Look at verse 32. Jesus experienced this with his relationship with the Father. He says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you'll be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father 
is with me. Jesus didn't go through what he went through alone either, except for that moment on the cross when the Father had to separate himself from himself, which I still to this day can't understand, but thank God it's true and I believe it. Where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, all of man's sin was put on Jesus and he experienced a separation from the Father that I don't, none of us could ever understand. Except for that moment, the whole time the Father was with him and walked him through it. And what does Jesus say at the end of that time? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. By the way, go with me real quick. This isn't in my notes, but it's extra, but it's free. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. The same experience that Jesus experienced is available to you and I if we would learn to move it from theology to practice in our lives. 2 Timothy chapter 4. You're going to hear Paul say something that's almost word for word. Remember what Jesus said. He says that hour is coming when you're all going to leave me all alone. But I'm not going to be alone. Even though you all desert me, I'm not going to be alone because the Father is with me. Look into 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul says this uh, in verse, uh, we'll start in verse 16. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus said, I mean, Paul said, you all left me, but I wasn't alone. But how many people today are moping and whining? But Christians, those who claim to be Christians, moping and whining because of how everybody left me alone and I'm all lonely and I'm all alone and nobody visits me and nobody looks in on me and all this kind of stuff. Let me just say something to you folks. After being a pastor for years, the people that were the lowest maintenance in the church were the ones who had the closest relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't need their pastor. They didn't need someone to take care. By the way, the Bible teaches that that's a valuable part of being a part of the church and we should look after each other. We should care for each other. We should be doing these things. But if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you should never say, I'm all alone. You're never alone. Jesus himself said, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to come to you myself in the form of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to be with you forever. You have to decide whether or not you're going to tap into that relationship that's there. But I want you to move from beyond the theology of he's with me to you're with me, God. Do you hear the difference? He's with me. You're with me. It becomes personal. Folks, I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who didn't, he didn't even have the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have, were able to say, we're not looking at you. We have no need to answer you in this matter. We're at peace about this. We don't know how this is going to play out, but we're going to be delivered out of your hand either way, whether by life or by death. And those who walk closely with the Lord have that understanding. Now, I want to take this episode real quick to talk to you about the trials by fire that we're going to face and some of you may be facing today. The Bible says that God is a God who refines by fire. Go back to Matthew, or I'm sorry, go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, look at verse 11. John is preaching and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and what? 
Fire. Fire is not only used for judgment, folks, it's also used for purifying and refining. Go to Malachi. Back up one book to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. I just touched on this, but I want to say it to you again. The scripture shows us that fire is not only used for judgment. We're going to talk about the end of our study. Fire is not only used for judgment. Fire is also used to purify and to refine. I actually had the privilege of talking with a pastor in the panhandle this afternoon for about an hour. And he and his wife are going through a trial right now. And he contacted me yesterday and said, can we talk? I just need someone to kind of walk me through something. That's one of the things I love doing is I encourage and counsel and, and mentor pastors all around the country. And we talked for a while. And as he was sharing what was going on and the trial that they're going through and all, at the end of talking with him for a while, I told him, I said, I mean, I'm kind of excited for you. He said, you're the first person that said that. And to be honest with you, I don't feel excited. Why do you say that? And I said, here's why. Because I've learned over the years that people that go through stuff that's as severe as what you're going through are the people that God wants to use mightily in the days to come. There's a different level of fire, a different level of heat for purifying silver than there is for purifying gold. You want to purify gold, you've got to have a hotter flame. You want to purify silver, it's a lesser flame. And folks, we all have different levels of things that God expects of each of us. But some of you might be going through tougher things than others. Would we not agree God used Paul mightily? Do you all not remember that Ananias was told right before he healed Paul of his blindness, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name? Folks, if you're going through a fire, if you're going through a trial, Jesus has already said in this world you're going to have different trials and different tests. But they have a purpose. It's not to judge us because we've already been taking, that's been taken care of. The judgment for our sins has been taken care of by Jesus on the cross. And those of us who are in Christ don't need to fear the judgment anymore. But there's still going to be a refining process. What did Jesus say in John chapter 15? Every branch in me that produces fruit, he prunes so that it produces more fruit. And so we could sit here and spend all our time talking about the awesome miracle of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and there's nothing wrong with looking at it like we have, but I want to take it a little bit more into what's going on with us today. There are still fires and trials that we're going to go through. Let me show you what I mean. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Isn't that awesome? Don't, don't miss that. We've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's guaranteed. And who's holding on to your salvation? You? No, God's holding on to it. And by His power, your salvation is unfading. It's never going to go away. You've got a wonderful salvation that we have. And in this, 
We greatly rejoice, it says in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're going to be going through trials in this life. They're a type of purifying fire. That's a part of what we expect, should expect as a Christian. We want a life where there's no trouble. We want a life where there's no suffering. We want a life where there's no cancer. We want a life where there's no... no we just want ease. And there's plenty of preachers out there that will tell you that that's what being a Christian means. That's not what the Bible teaches. You rejoice in your salvation. The Bible says you should also rejoice in your suffering. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Not 1 Peter. First, sorry, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You don't worry about judgment anymore. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look forward to this heaven, this salvation that's ours. But not only this, we rejoice in our what? Sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I don't want to say you've done this, but I know many of people that have said, nothing good ever happens to me. Well, what have you ever said about, what are you saying about your salvation, first of all? And on top of that, when trouble comes into our life, we say, why is this happening to me? Why is God being so mean? What have I done wrong that he's making me suffer like this when the Bible actually says this is a good thing? Count it all joy, James 1, chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character hope. Listen to what we see here as well. The Bible says these trials have come, if necessary, to prove your faith genuine. I look around the room, and I know some of your stories, and some of you that are watching online tonight because of what you're going through right now with cancer, and you're not able to be here tonight. I know you're watching. Know that you're loved. The neat thing is, as I look at some of you and the things that you've gone through and losing children and different things that you've been through, you are still here because your faith has been proven genuine. Your faith's not a faith that says, if my child didn't die, then I'll believe in him. My faith is not a faith that says, if I didn't get cancer, then I'd believe in him. Folks, you know he's able to fix your situation, but if he chooses not to, you're going nowhere. This is the only true God, and Jesus Christ is him. And I will worship him till the day I die, even if he chooses not to do things how I want him to. There's a forgotten beatitude a lot of people don't know. If I ask you to take me real quickly in the Bible to the Beatitudes, you'd go to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are these, blessed are those. There's a forgotten Beatitude. Look at it later on. You can look at it later on. It's in Matthew chapter 11. It's in verse 6. Where John is sitting in prison, and he's now questioning if Jesus is the one, or should we look for another? 
And Jesus says, you go back and tell John everything's right on schedule. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the good news being preached to the poor. Listen to verse 6 in Matthew 11. And blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of me. Blessed is he who doesn't fall away on account of how I run my world. I get to be God. I get to do things how I want and have my reasons and my purposes. And I've already proven that I'm good through what I've done through my son dying for you on the cross when you were my enemy and you were a sinner. Folks, that means if you really understand this and it moves from I can pass the written test to I understand it in my heart, that means that when you go through the next trial, your first reaction will not be God's punishing me because you know he's already punished all of your sin at Jesus and you'll know this may not be fun, this may not be good in the sense of me enjoying it, but all things will cause to be work out for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He has a good purpose in mind. And even if I don't survive this in my flesh, because he's able to rescue me, but he may not. I get to go where? You get to go be with him. You get to go to heaven. I've asked so many people, how are you doing? I'm at least I'm on this side of the dirt, they say. I say, the other side's better. I say that every time. The other side's better. If you know Jesus, the other side's better. Why are you hanging on to here? I'm not asking us all to run out and jump in front of a car tonight. I'm just saying, don't hang on to this life. And when you don't hang on to this life, what's Satan got to come at you with? Jesus stood before Pilate and Pilate said, don't you realize I have the authority to either have you released or have you put to death? And Jesus says, you'd have no authority over me unless they're given to you by my father. I'm not looking at you, Pilate. I'm looking at the one who's actually in control and I'm good. Jim, in, in, in my notes, I have listed that in, in all of it, we're more than conquerors in, in Romans 8. You got it. No matter what, we're more than conquerors. Yes. God will be glorified in, if you have real faith, he'll be glorified in your body, whether by life or by death. Folks, praise God. For those of you who hadn't heard, we put it on all our social media through Elise doing her job, and she's doing an awesome job, by the way. We put out that, praise the Lord, I had my six-month checkup again for my non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and my blood work came back clear, and my, I'm cancer-free, praise the Lord, three and a half years now. It's been exactly four years that I've been diagnosed since I was diagnosed with the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Went through the chemo and the radiation, and took, buddy, I don't want to ever go through that again, but God did some amazing things through that. Been three and a half years that I'm cancer-free, but listen, as much as we can praise God for the fact that He chose to heal me, and I continue to record, get more reward later on in heaven, if I died, don't take it wrong. I love y'all. But to be with Jesus is even better. <laughs> Either way, not only am I a winner, you all are winners if you're in Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors through him who's taking care of all that stuff. That's why we can say, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? You don't take the mark, I'm going to kill you. Do me a favor. <laughs> kind of loses its power over you, doesn't it? Folks, too many of us get worried about things that we shouldn't be hanging on to. This testing, these trials by the way, are the paths of righteousness. Go back to Psalm 23. I'll be honest with you. It just recently in the past couple of months that God opened my eyes to this. 
he had me just meditate on Psalm 23 for about a month. And as I was just praying over and reading through and studying and meditating over and over on Psalm 23, this jumped off the page at me. Listen again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Doesn't that sound awesome? By the way, if anybody's never taken a nap on a lawn somewhere outdoors, go do it. It's one of the best naps in the grass, in the sun. It really is cool. He leads me beside still waters. That's awesome too, isn't it? He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Oh, that sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds wonderful. Even though I walk through the valley, wait a minute, how do I end up in the valley of the shadow of death? I thought I was on green pastures and by still waters and my soul was being restored. Lord, I loved the first part of this. Listen, the path of righteousness is the valley of the shadow of death. I can prove it to you. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 11. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 12, verse 5, You've forgotten the exhortation, some translations say encouragement, that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Remember, discipline is not punishment. It's training, it's shaping, it's molding. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, shapes, prunes, refines with the fire the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of our spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The paths of righteousness in Psalm 23 is the valley of the shadow of death. Righteousness will not be produced in your life without the trial, without the fire. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after what happened. But you know who really promoted them? God did. Have you ever thought about that? When you come through the fire, when you come through a trial, and you grow in your faith in the Lord and your love for Him because of it, the Bible says all that stuff's going to be produced. Do you know in the eyes of God, you've been promoted? You're moving on to another level of maturity? I kind of like the idea of that. We already quoted James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, how we're to count it all joy when we face trials. Because they're going to produce what God wants to produce. We've already looked at Romans 5, 1 through 5, and how we, we can rejoice in our suffering because God's not mad at us. He's taking us, because of His love, poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to another level of understanding of who He is. We can rejoice in our suffering. When these three Hebrews come out of the test, the furnace, they come out alone. Jesus doesn't come with them. You ever think about the fact that the two men on the road to Emmaus had Jesus walking with them in their struggle? He was there, but then he disappeared. And they run back into the upper room all by themselves. 
Now, Jesus does show up later on and reveal himself to everybody there. How come God, I want to show hands first, and I want honesty here. How many of you can honestly say, Jim, I've been through some things in my life that were so intense and so real that I experienced a walk with God at a level I never would have ever unless I had gone through that trial. You know what I'm talking about? I figured almost everybody here could. Could you fully describe to everybody what he did during that time? No. All you were to do was to witness and testify to the fact that he was there. And he's real. The others saw something in these men, but there was no smell of smoke. They had no, uh, no, the fire hadn't touched their skin or their body or their hair or their clothing. There was something different about them, but they were left to witness to it alone. We've been given this role. It's just kind of an interesting thing. Uh, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, who did he appear to? For the 40 days that he rose from the, after he rose from the dead, who did he appear to? Just the disciples, those who believed in him. 500 at one time on a mountain in Galilee, some women, the disciples in the upper room. Did he appear to Pilate? Did he appear to all the Sanhedrin and show up at their next meeting? Wouldn't that have been fun? <laughs> Remember me? There's lots of cool things that we would have thought, man. But his plan was that he appeared to those who believe in him. And he said, what? You're going to be my witnesses now. I'm going to be with you. But you're not going to be able to fully explain it. But I just want you to go out and tell everybody that I'm real, and I'm alive, and that I'm here. God, they're going to think I'm crazy. Yeah, but... If they ever understand it, it's not because you worded it so good anyway. It's because I opened their eyes. So don't worry about that. I just want you to go and be my witness. Go back and tell people what I've done for you. Go back and tell people what I've done for you. He has shown up. He has shown his power. But they were to proclaim God's greatness. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, a passage we looked at yesterday, last week. But look at it again at verses 9 through 13. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 13. Look at the responsibility and the role we've been given. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, as exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. How did this whole thing with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego start out? Who, who ratted on them that they weren't bowing down? The, the Chaldeans, the, the other astrologers and magicians and all those other guys, they all ratted on them and said, these Hebrews, they don't do it. Their purpose was to accuse them of being evildoers. They were faithful to obey God. And in the end, who was proven right? They were. 
The Bible says that our role in this life is not to live for this world, not to love the world or the things in the world, but to live in such a way that we're in the world but not of it, so that if anybody even tries to accuse us of bad stuff, they know it's really not going to stick and it can't stick because we've been walking in faith in the Lord and obedience to Him and trust that on the day that He shows up, they're all going to go, we knew it all along. We knew it all along. Again, as I've shared with some of you in the past, I'm not a drinker. That's what God's made very clear to me that in the role that he's given me because of the issues with alcohol that are out there, he wants me to stay a teetotaler. And I've never really had a drink of alcohol in my life except for a communion tray in a Lutheran church that I took from the wrong tray. That's the only alcohol I've ever had in my life. (laughs) That and NyQuil. All right, so... When I was in college at the University of New Hampshire, the first year and a half of my college career, of course, I was in a dorm, and there was lots of drinking going on. And they made fun of me. There even came a time one time when a bunch of guys decided they were going to fix my problem, and they came in and jumped on me, and some tried to pour beer down my throat as they all held me down. I played Samson at the time and threw them all off. And, but... About a year goes by, and I'm walking down the hall one day, and a guy calls to me from his dorm room. He said, come here for a second. So what's going on? He said, I want to tell you that I'm jealous of you. I said, why is that? He said, I've been watching you. You really believe this stuff that you talk about? I said, yeah. He said, I have a confession to make. I drink because everybody else does, and I hate it. I don't even like how it smells. I don't even like how it tastes, but I want to be accepted. But you're willing to say you're not going to do what everybody else is doing to be accepted, and this is what he said, I wish I could be like you. I go, do you want to take care of that right now? And he goes, no, no. But I just want you to know I'm jealous. They're watching more than you realize, folks. They're watching more than you realize. Don't get super holy. Just don't hang on to the things of this world that everybody else thinks are so important. Lastly, ironically and interestingly, Satan himself will ultimately be cast into the fire by God. You all do know that, right? Revelation chapter 20 talks about in seven, verses 7 through 15, at the end of the thousand years, he's going to be thrown into a pit for a thousand years and bound there, but at the end he's going to be released. He's going to be able to do what he wants for a brief period of time, gather an army real quick to fight against Jesus, who's actually in Jerusalem at that time, and Jesus himself with the breath of his mouth is going to destroy him, and then Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever, and Jesus won't show up to rescue him. Let's close with 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 4 through 9. For if God, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, 
a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. If all that has happened, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I said it before, I'll say it again. Is there wickedness going on in our globe? Are there men that are plotting evil? Are there political things that are being done that we know are underhanded and illegal and not right? Leave them to the Lord. You just put your eyes on Jesus. Stop getting caught up in all the chat rooms and all the debates and all the stuff. You have an opportunity right now to talk to people about what's more important. Just don't bow down. Don't get sucked into all that stuff. God knows how to save the ungodly for the day of judgment. And he knows how to rescue the righteous from the same trial. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fire did not hurt them. Because Jesus protected them from it. And he's promised to do the same for you and I. Whether by life or by death. It's kind of freeing, isn't it? I love you all. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.